Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, and then we'll pray. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he, has, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, truly Jesus Christ is supreme. We've seen that. We've tasted that. We've beheld that truth many times for those of us in Christ. And we pray that once again, we would behold the supremacy of Christ this morning. Lord, would you mightily work by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Unite us, unite this church around his glorious eternal headship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The Quran teaches that the purpose of life is to worship the creator, believing in him and doing good deeds. Some would say that the purpose of life for Hinduism is a bit hard to narrow down, but part of the purpose of life, according to Hinduism, is to live virtuously and to live righteously, to act morally and ethically throughout one's life so that you might be blessed in the life to come. I was trying to find the purpose of life according to a human secularist, a postmodernist, and this is what I came up with on the interwebs. What is the point of life? If there's one thing that holds true for most of us, it's that the point of life is to live and experience things to the fullest. Whatever that fullest means for you right now. Don't rush your quest for meaning. Instead, make a point of finding joy in what you already have and try your best to feel grounded in the present. At some point, you'll find the answer you're looking for. And in the meantime, enjoy the journey. That could be one definition from a human secularist. Atheists would have various meanings, but in the, they would say the purpose of life, there is no ultimate meaning. And that this life is all you have to live for. So what does the Bible say the purpose of life is? Humans want to find meaning in life. We would say one way to sum it up, Christian, is to know God and to enjoy him forever. And this knowledge of God can only occur through the act of redemption. The knowledge of God, the ability to know him and enjoy him forever can only occur through the act of redemption. So in our passage today, we're going to walk through it. And our first question we're going to ask is, what is redemption? What is redemption? And then secondly, we're going to look at the blood-bought effects of redemption. So what is redemption? There's three sub-points. And the blood-bought effects of redemption 
and three subpoints under that. So first of all, what is redemption? Look at verse 7 of chapter 1 in Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood. As a reminder, last week we looked at uh, verses 3 to 6. And this whole thing, this whole portion of scripture from verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence in the Greek. And it all starts with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an exaltation, a, a worshiping of God. And then he goes into different ways that God has blessed us in Christ. And we looked at adoption last week, or election and sonship, us being chosen in Christ from before the foundations of the world, and now we come to this blessing act of redemption, how that being chosen is carried out. So what does the word redemption mean here? If the rest of the passage, or at least up until verse 10, flows from redemption, what does redemption mean? I think we use redemption maybe more than you and I are aware of. So we might hear, I need to redeem the time. Or perhaps you've heard a villain on a kid's show, as I heard recently, say, redemption is mine. Or maybe you've redeemed a coupon at the groceries. Do they do that anymore? Remember, Katie, when you were in a couponing for like a week? It was a lot of work, couponing. She was, no, you were parenting, sorry. We had friends that would save like hundreds of dollars on couponing, but they'd also, it was like a full-time job. So whatever phrases you've heard, we need to define redemption so we're on the same page. So here are two very brief definitions of redemption. One, freed by ransom. Redemption means to be freed by ransom. Or another way to say it is to be, or, or is released by payment. Freed by ransom or release by payment. So think of Israel enslaved under the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt. They had to be released from their slavery and they had to be bought. Something had to happen so that their firstborn son wouldn't be killed. The payment was blood bought by the sacrificial lamb. There had to be a payment and it was the blood. And if they smeared the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost, they would be released from this angel of death. Israel was redeemed by a payment of blood. So there was this holding on them and there was this holding on us in this era uh, before being redeemed, which necessitated us to be released or freed by some sort of payment. In chapter 2, Paul says that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. He says that we were sons of disobedience. Paul says, Scripture says that we were children of wrath. That's what we were. We had a father, but his name was the devil. And he was a horrible father that led us astray. He lied to us. He deceived us. He worked to destroy us. And he had a grip on us. So in order to be released from the grip of the devil, this 
this angel of light, someone more powerful had to come along and release us. And that someone is Jesus. And the way to be released from his grip is in order that there had to be a payment in order to be released. And Jesus did this with strength displayed through weakness. He did it through the ultimate sign of weakness. He did it through death. That's how we were redeemed. Through death. Jesus laid down his life and his blood was spilled. And he did this willingly. He did this compassionately. He looked upon you and I. If you are in Christ with mercy and with pity. And with a heart overwhelming with compassion. To be redeemed there needed to be a price to pay. John Gill in talking about the mercy and the pity, of Christ, the pity of Christ on sinners who needed to be redeemed, says this. And mercy called Christ to undertake the work of redemption. So it was Christ's mercy, his pity, his compassion on the helpless sinner. The sinner we just sang about that was hellbound. Mercy called Christ to undertake the work of redemption and engaged him in it. Mercy sent him in the fullness of time to visit them and perform it. Mercy delivered him up into the hands of justice and death in order to obtain it. And it most illustriously glorified in it. Mercy and truth have met together. Yes, Christ himself in his love and pity has redeemed his people. Complete salvation and eternal life itself flow from the mercy of God. He saves not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy. Redemption is accomplished. The payment was made out of a heart that overflowed with compassion and pity for those who would be blood-bought. Let's drill down a little bit more in redemption. Okay, so a, a price to, uh, um, how did I define it? Freed, uh, uh, freed by ransom or released by payment. Freed by ransom or released by payment. But then in scriptures, you see three different kind of aspects, three primary ways redemption is expressed in scripture. And you see that in the past way that redemption is expressed. You see that in a present way and you see that in a future way. So in the past way that redemption is expressed, all the legal demands are met. So consider Romans 3:23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. More specifically, Galatians 3:13-14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So it happened on the cross for you, believer, around 2,000 years ago. That's the first way redemption is expressed. In the past, let me read one more. Hebrews nine twelve 
Speaking of Jesus as a great high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. His one-time sacrifice, his one-time perfect sacrifice, secured an eternal redemption for his people. Redemption in the past means that there's no wrath on you, Christian, anymore. You are not a son of disobedience. You're not a child of wrath. You are not dead in your trespasses. But you are alive in Christ. And because of that, because you are now alive in Christ, there are present implications or present effects of redemption. Mainly, so we went to the past, now look at the present, mainly the power to resist sin. So if you think of redemption, you only think about what was accomplished on the cross at that time. You're selling yourself short of how the Bible talks about redemption. Consider one passage, Titus 2.14. Speaking of Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So now in Christ, we have this zeal not to follow in the ways where we used to walk, but to follow in ways of righteousness, zealous for good works. This is exactly what the prophets prophesied about, particularly Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you can look at the end of Deuteronomy as well, that one day God would send a prophet and through this prophet, he would give you a new heart Willing and wanting to follow his ways. So let me read some of those passages. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, an active living heart. So what was dead and cold, I'm going to make alive and warm. So that's, that's a past, right? And then he says in Ezekiel 36, 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's the present way that redemption is expressed. Jeremiah 31 says something similar. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, no, Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Both Jeremiah and both Ezekiel, and you can go and look in Deuteronomy as well. They're all prophesying to this day where people will willingly and wantingly, it will be their nature to want to follow God. So Christian, currently understand the power that the Holy Spirit has, this gift of God to you, the Holy Spirit, in order to give you daily and hourly victory over sin. We just sang about it in All I Have is Christ. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see 
The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. That's a prayer in line with Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And that's a prayer that can only be prayed with any confidence that it will be answered if you have been redeemed. So just consider your anger or your lust. Do you feel overwhelmed by your anger or your lust or your greed or your jealousy? Well, God says that if you are in Christ, you have power to resist those sins. You are not crippled. You are made alive together with Christ, united with him. And every resource in Christ because of the gift of the Holy Spirit to overcome those temptations and not give in to sin. Kids, I know what it's like to be in school. I remember the temptation to gossip. The temptation to talk about other students. The temptation to talk about other teachers. Kids, when you are in school and you hear gossip going on, you don't have to give in to that gossip. If you're in Christ, you have every power. You might make the awkward moments because when someone comes to you with gossip, they're wanting to hear more of this gossip. But you have every power in Christ not to give in to that, even though it's tempting. Thirdly, we see this future benefit, this future aspect of redemption, which I think can best be summed up in the word glorification. Jesus himself talks about this in Luke 21, verses 27 and 28 says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Because your redemption is drawing near. Romans eight twenty three, similar about this future redemption. So for you and I, Christian, we've been redeemed at the cross. Legal demands have been met. We've been given this new spirit, this willing and wanting desire to follow Jesus, his ways, his will. But we haven't yet seen this third aspect of redemption occurred. And we won't until Jesus comes back. And so Paul says in Romans eight twenty three. That not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, in light of Ephesians 1, he's saying, You've been adopted, but you haven't seen the fullness of your adoption yet until that day of redemption. This is what he's telling this church that is liable to be discouraged. This church, this Ephesian church, this one old Baptist church full of physical ailments, ailments of the mind, that one day your body will be glorified. And you can be sure of this because you have been redeemed. And that was accomplished at the cross with a plan that was part of the fullness of time and God's infinite wisdom. All right, there's redemption. That was all of the very first chunk of verse 7. Now, three effects of redemption. Or, as I said, blood-bought effects of redemption. I'll give them to you up front. Forgiveness, knowledge, 
united. Forgiveness, knowledge, and united. Look back at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, we need forgiveness because we've crossed boundaries that we never were supposed to cross. We've gone places that we never were supposed to to go. And that's an offense to a holy, righteous God. Currently, I'm trying to grow grass in my backyard. Two years ago, we laid out sod. It's kind of a big investment. It looked amazing for like that whole summer. And the kids started playing on it. And it, you see little parts where they, uh, there was some wear and tear. We put the trampoline over here. And then we realized it was killing the grass because it was not getting enough sun or maybe rain. I'm not sure. So we said, you know what? Well, let's put it over here to give this grass a break. Um, that grass never rejuvenated, never revived. And guess what we did? We killed this spot as well. So currently, you see, uh, this summer, I was resolute to let, have a luscious green backyard because we made this big investment, right, with sod. And I keep telling the kids and their sweet neighbor friends, hey, 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 guys, don't step over there. You know, that's my, my sweet panicky voice because I'm trying not to get them uh, to step on the little seedlings that have sprouted and are so tender at this stage of their life. I don't want them to cross the line because I don't want to be trespassers onto the grass. In a very different and much more serious way, when we trespass against what God has ordained and called holy, that's an offense to God. That's an offense to our holy God. With God, any kind of trespass is a transgression. Any kind of step in the wrong direction is a transgression, a sin. Going places that you and I should not have gone. A sin of eating from a tree that was forbidden. And we do this not just in our actions, but we do this in our hearts. A sin is so pervasive, you can't even see it from the outside. You can't merely see it from the outside. In fact, the scriptures say that sin starts in what you feel, what you think. It starts in your way you approach the world and your, your worldview. And so in Psalm 139, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in in the way of everlasting. The psalmist isn't here saying, God, help me to do good deeds. Lord, help me to make sure that I have good works that don't transgress your law. No, he's going much more deeper and intimate. He knows he needs something to happen to his heart in order for it to be pure. So he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Friends, sin is pervasive. And we can cross the boundaries of God's holiness by sinning, even with a wrong thought. A momentary fleeting thought that lasts one second. And that is an offense to a holy, good, righteous God. But also seeing the text. Seeing this text. Yes, though there are transgressions. We have forgiveness of these trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. God forgives from the riches of his grace. Paul is saying to these disheartened Ephesian believers that the Lord has storehouses upon storehouses of grace for his blood-bought adopted children. 
And look at this. You don't need to coax God into giving you grace. You don't have to merely formulate the right kind of prayer in order to get this grace from God. He has lavished this upon you. This lavishment of grace happened upon you the day you realized your sin and came to him for the first time. And this was accomplished through his unparalleled wisdom and eternal insight. God has storehouses of grace, riches of grace for his children. How many of you have seen the, the movie Hobbit, the, de- the Desolation of Smog? How many of you have seen that? You remember, Smog is in that huge storehouse with all those treasures. There's gold and diamonds and all sorts of treasures. It appears to go on and on and on. So just picture God with an eternal storehouse of grace that is far more valuable and is made of imperishable riches for his, Christ- for his children. God loves lavishing grace upon his children. Rarely does it come in the form that we desire it. But it comes. And we get to know him more and deeper and deeper ways. Christian, you have been forgiven completely if you are in Christ. What egregious sin have you done recently? Or maybe in years past that you say, you know what? That was so wicked so bad. How could God really forgive me for that? I wonder how many of you have committed a sin this week and you feel like you're just too dirty, too wicked, too unclean to go to God. And so you give it an hour, give it a day, you give it a few days and you crawl yourself back to the throne room of grace because you think that God's been holding something over you from that time. That's not what the scripture says. Scripture says that God, through Christ, is willing to give you riches and riches of grace. God is glorified through brokenhearted sinners who come to him for more grace. Don't keep God at arm's length if you are in sin. He loves forgiving his children. Secondly, we see a second effect of Redemption is knowledge. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And then he goes on, or sorry, and then in this knowledge, so you see that in verse 9, making known. So there's these things that we didn't know, and now he's making us, making known to us three different things, a mystery, a purpose, and a plan. Look at this mystery. God has knowledge that we do not. God has knowledge that we do not. He is omniscient. We are not omniscient. And in redemption, the release of bondage by his precious blood, the mystery of his will is now revealed. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. Mystery in scripture is more like a secret revealed And less like a Scooby-Doo crime to solve. Mystery in scripture is more like a secret revealed and less like a Scooby-Doo crime to solve. So there's not a puzzle where you need all the pieces. Every Christmas time, it seems like the open houses have a grand big puzzle on their table. And they're there, they're spending hours kind of day in, day out, putting the puzzle together. That's not the kind of mystery 
that is described here in Scripture. Mystery is something that was hidden for ages and now is unhidden. And if you have this knowledge that Jesus is God's anointed king, that the Messiah is Jesus from Nazareth, that he is a Christ, then this knowledge is a blessing of redemption. Here's one of the outworkings of redemption. You see, not everyone can see Jesus as a promised Messiah, as the mystery revealed. They're blinded by the God of this age and unwilling to be paid for by the blood of Christ. And so they remain in their sins and they look at Jesus as some moral teacher, some historical figure. But they don't see him as God's anointed king. And this knowledge that you get is a blessing of redemption. And only possible if you've been blood bought by Jesus. God here has led us in on his heart for the world. He's again pulled the curtain back a little bit. He said, look at what I'm doing. John Chrysostom said in his commentary on Ephesians, he wrote this uh, in the fourth century. He said this about this passage. God has made us wise and prudent in that which is true wisdom And that which is true prudence. Strange. What friendship. For he he tells us his secrets. The mystery says he of his will. As if one should say he has made known to us the things that are in his heart. For here is indeed the mystery which is full of all wisdom of prudence. Those that were nothing it has discovered. A way of raising them to wealth and abundance. What can equal his wise counsel. He that was an enemy, he that was hated, he is in a moment lifted up on high and, that, and not this only, but yet more. That it, that it should be done at this particular time. This again was the work of wisdom and that it should be done by the means of the cross. If you look at the cross and you say, this is the wisdom of God. You have been redeemed and blood bought by the cross. So not only does he talk about the mystery revealed for knowledge, but then he also says that there is this purpose that is revealed, this knowledge of purpose. He says, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ in verse nine, there is a knowledge that all this is in accord with God's purpose or good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ. That word purpose there in your ESV translation, which we use here at this church in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, in the King James, that word is actually translated good pleasure. In the New American Standard Version, it's called kind intention. So God kindly, with his own good pleasure, has revealed this knowledge to us. And he enjoys it. This is a happy God putting forth his plans which bring him pleasure. They please him because his beloved has pleased him. He delights in his only begotten son. And now part of his plan is to delight in others who have been blood-bought, redeemed by the death of his only begotten son in whom he is well pleased. This is supernatural knowledge that makes the so-called superior knowledge of Cambridge or Harvard or any Ivy League school look like toddler's coloring book. 
So Christian, if you're not wise according to this world, take confidence that God has revealed secret wisdom to you. And this is part of his good plan and his good pleasure. And he delights in it. He's happy that you know this. Oh, this is so important for your Christian life. To know that God in his good purpose has set forth Christ for you because out of that good pleasure, listen to this Christian, out of that good pleasure, that good plan where he has decided to let you in on this, in the act of redemption flows every other single way you handle trials in your life. The rest of Ephesians talks about this a little bit. Romans 8 certainly talks about this. The same concept. The glories of redemption is that now you have a lens into which you can view all your trials. All your hardships through this lens of redemption of Christ. So I said last week that you, if you are a Christian who does not believe that God governs your trials. He sends your trials. Then you will have an unnecessarily arduous life. It will be a difficult road for you. You will be susceptible to harshness or escapism. So let me encourage you one more time, Christian. Believe that God has set forth his good pleasure, his good purpose in your life on the cross at redemption. And now you are adopted as a son and a daughter of the most high. And now every single trial that comes your way is a good, providential, kind gift from God. And when you look at trials in the face like that, you don't see them as speed bumps to get over, hurdles to jump over, annoying problems to fix. You say, God, I don't understand what you're doing. But I have every confidence that this is for my good because I can look at the cross and that was part of your good pleasure for me then. And I know that this unwanted, bitter trial is for my good. And you can walk with your head up high, even through the severest and most unwanted trials in your life. That is a good, they are good gifts from God. In verse 10. We see that part of this knowledge is his plan, a plan for the fullness of time. I love that word plan there in the Greek. One way to translate it is, this is, this is my way of translating, is, is a house, kind of a household administration managerial plan. It's an interesting word, but it means that God has been intentional with all these things. He's not operating in abstract ways. He's not just kind of rolling the dice and seeing what happens. It means that this has been a specific plan and that God is the manager of this plan and he's doing this for the fullness of time. And therefore, going back to trials, when we don't see what God is doing, we know that what he is doing is for our good. In the same sense that Jesus, it looked horrible on the cross. It looked to the eyes of those who beheld it that this was a failed attempt At having a righteous king. And yet all along, God knew. God was orchestrating this thing. Jesus was willingly laying down his life for his sheep. He had a plan for the fullness of time. And it all centers around the cross. 
Another grass illustration, except this time not my backyard, my front yard. A couple weeks ago, you would have looked at my front yard and you would have scoffed at me. You see, my front yard is full of zoysia grass. Raise your hand if you know what zoysia grass is. It's oftentimes what they use on uh, the golf course. Does anyone else have zoysia? Any bro- yes, thank you, thank you. Um, it's embarrassing for a couple months to have zoysia because it stays brown. And meanwhile, all your neighbors have this nice, green, luscious grass. And so my neighbor across the street, Justin, he has these poles roped off where you cannot go on his grass right now. Not that many people do, but he has these poles, he has it roped off so that you can't grow on his grass. He waters it. He makes sure it gets the right kind of fertilizer. And meanwhile, I'm just chilling with my ugly zoysia grass because you know what? I have a plan. I know what zoysia does. Zoysia is a spreading grass. It spreads kind of like a weed, but it's actually a flower and it spreads and it grows. And my plan is to do nothing because the kids are going to play on the zoysia grass and my kids can keep playing on the zoysia because zoysia is durable and a hardy grass. And I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to rope off anything. But everyone who drives by my house says that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Well, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm patiently waiting as the zoysia continues to green and be fill in. The grass, the grass looks rough now, but I want my kids to enjoy it and to play football and soccer on the front yard. And they will be able to do that in times coming. But the point is this. It doesn't look good for the Carrington's front lawn. But we've been there for a couple of years now and we know... That actually right now, especially in the last weeks of May, it's going to look amazing. And everyone's going to be able to party on the front lawn of the Carringtons. Unlike your grass neighbor with your blue grass, Kentucky, whatever, fescue, etc. This is a plan for the fullness of time. God is orchestrating all things, even if we can't see it, even if we don't know it, even if we have no idea what he's doing. We have confidence because of this redemption. Uh, The last benefit, we've talked about the uh, forgiveness of sins. We've talked about the knowledge revealed to us. And now, thirdly, united. This grand plan is orchestrating in verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The things of heaven and the things of earth have been severed. They are no longer in harmony because of sin. There is disunity between the two. And now in this Christ, in Christ, all things in heaven and all things on earth will be united in him. Church, that's why our Lord teaches us to pray as he does. He says, pray like this. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. God be glorified. May your name be glorified. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. So the answer to that prayer is found in the next part of the Lord's prayer where the Lord said, give us this day our daily bread. We know that Jesus is the manna from heaven. Jesus has become the portion. Jesus is the daily bread. The only means for true goodness and true beauty and true knowledge in the world is Jesus Christ. Christ supreme in all things. 
Jesus Christ has become the blood-bought person's portion, the daily bread, the only means for true goodness and beauty and knowledge is in Christ. And so around this headship, around the beautiful headship of Christ, things on earth can begin to look like things in heaven where there is no sin and complete harmony in the presence of Jesus. Friends, as Andrew prayed earlier, that's why it is so important to pray for and to persevere in the unity of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ, the blood-bought church of Christ is so precious to him. He loves his church. And so we persevere with unity. Not unity with our own self-assessment, our own ideas, our own wisdom. But unity around Jesus and what Jesus has said. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for proof. Rebuke for training in righteousness. Jesus is the word of God. Word made flesh. So everything revealed in this book. This is what Jesus says. Hey, you want to follow me? You want to be united? You want things in heaven and earth to be united? You want to be a mirror to the world of what it looks like? Of heavenly things? Look at to what I've said. Oh, thank you God for not making your will too hard to figure out. Let us be a church that looks to his word. This is part of God's grand redemptive plan of putting Christ in his right place. Heaven and earth under him. The purchaser of the redeemed being worshipped by those who are redeemed. Worshipping the lamb who was slain. The payment for adoption as sons. It is Christ and Christ alone. Church, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Only him. As a Puritan, John Murray says, union with Christ is the umbrella that encapsulates everything. This is what he's doing in the world. And churches all across the globe. God is calling us to be mirrors of this kind of unity. And so we strive imperfectly. Though resolutely, we strive for this kind of unity because it's so precious to him and to this watching world. Who's looking around saying, what do Christians unite over? And all we have to do is we got nothing special in ourselves. We have no geniusness about us. See, is that even a word? Geniusness? See? Makes no sense. There's nothing about me. Nothing about you. All we are is pointing to the lamb who was slain. Jesus, who is the Christ. In conclusion, these are the eternal realities that Christians hold dearly who have been blood bought by redemption. This brings God's joy and this is according to his marvelous matchless plan. Let's pray. Lord, if when we were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we thought that the cross was foolishness. We arrogantly and ignorantly looked upon the cross of Christ and said, we don't need that. Or maybe, Lord, we saw it as a mere historical event and nothing more.
And we thank you, O God, to revealing to us that the cross of Christ is beautiful and glorious. True wisdom is found there. Oh God, we thank you for your kindness in redeeming us, a people for yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.